The secret of change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting the old, but on building the new. Socrates. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets of Saturn. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. On this episode, we have Bob Podolsky. Bob Podolsky worked with John David Garcia to create highly ethical and creative organizations in groups of eight known as the Octologue. More than 30 years ago, Bob started asking himself what would be required for humanity to thrive and flourish. Bob Podolsky is a physicist, systems analyst, master psychotherapist, visionary, and author of seven books on ethics, law, and government. Bob brings a solution-based strategy for self-governance and self-awareness. And welcome to the show, Bob. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. How about we start off with a little bit of your background? Okay. Let's see. Where to begin? I grew up in a science household. My father was a scientist, Boris Podolsky, and he was got to be quite well known, wrote a paper with Einstein. So I grew up in a kind of a heady atmosphere, very left brain and systematic. And it was okay. I learned a lot from that. It had its downside. But uh, my first career, I tried to follow in my father's footsteps, and I became a physicist. And uh, I was never a great physicist. I was a good one, but never a great one. And for 10 years, I worked in that field. It was uh, like living the life of Dilbert, you know, the <laughs> cartoon guy. Uh, most of my time was spent in a cubicle, and I was pretty much surrounded by neurotic bureaucrats. And that's pretty much the Dilbert story. And I did 10 years of that, roughly half of it in industry and half of it in government. And I finally got fed up with it. So at that point, I got out of it. I got retrained, and I became a psychotherapist. And I had a private practice for 25 years in Oregon. And I loved the change. I mean, it was phenomenal. My health got better. My enthusiasm for my work got better. I actually got to see people benefit from what I was doing which I never did as a physicist and systems engineer, systems analyst, or all those titles. Sounds like not only your stress levels went down, but your rewarding feeling oh, yeah. way up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, it did wonders for, for my self-esteem, for how I perceive myself. So that was really cool. And then I noticed uh, quite a few of my clients were involved in business. So I figured, well, I better learn something about business. And I did. I studied business and actually got to where for a while I was doing some business consulting. And then in 1984, I met John David Garcia, and that experience changed my life. And uh, John David was a very, very brilliant individual. I mean, he knew enough math to solve equations in quantum mechanics, and he knew enough biology to give a really good under, uh, explanation of biological evolution. And he knew foreign languages, and he knew comparative religions, and he knew a lot of history. And undoubtedly, the most broadly educated person, uh, he also knew several languages, including Chinese, which he taught himself. <laughs> so, I got together with him. Uh, he had owned a business in San Francisco, a computer business, 
And the business was worth something like $100 million mm. when he decided, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I'm just making money. What's the point of that? <laughs> he wanted to do something significant, something meaningful. So he walked away from the business. And he went up to Oregon and bought a ranch and began studying creativity. That's where I met him. I, I saw an ad for a free weekend-long creativity workshop. And I went to it. And that was the beginning of a long friendship. Uh, we were together doing research on creativity for the next 17 years. Then he died. But I've been carrying on his work in some ways. So I want to address a little bit about uh, what that work was. Okay. Uh, because uh, it has so changed my life in so many beneficial ways that... I recommend it to people that they become aware of it and have devoted my life since then to getting the word out. And even though the word is spreading, uh, we're just getting started at this point. Here we are in August of 2015, and uh, I've been playing with these things since 85, so 30 years. So coming back to creativity, why creativity? Well. Everything that we really love in life comes from one or another form of creativity. Is that obvious? Mm-hmm. Okay. Definitely. Okay, well, there are people for whom it's not obvious, so, <laughs> I, do, so I do mention it. And another interesting thing about creativity is that when you do something that increases creativity, either in yourself or in someone else, it also crease, increases several other resources. It increases your access to objective truth. It increases your awareness. It increases love. So creativity, love, awareness, and objective truth, they are logically equivalent in that if you increase any one of them, they're all increased. If you limit or diminish any of them, they're all limited or diminished. So they are very important resources. Now, out of that exploration of creativity uh, came, for me, a profound change in my understanding of ethics. I'm sure that if I were to ask your listening audience, do you live your life ethically, that uh, they would all say, oh yes, I live <laughs> my life ethically. And I'm equally sure that were I to ask them, any one of them, to provide a good definition of an ethic... It'd be very rare that anyone had the answer, which makes it kind of paradoxical. How is it we live our lives ethically without knowing more about ethics? Well, the problem there is, first of all, we've been taught that it's a trivial subject. I actually believed that. Uh, I started changing that belief around 1973, and it changed dramatically, more so after I met John David. I realize now it's the most important subject for anyone to learn. And so I teach it. But I don't teach it the way you, you would get it at a university. You go to a university, and a philosophy professor teaching ethics will tell you all about what Plato said, and what Socrates said, hmm. and what Aristotle said, and what Epictetus said. Mind you, I've been exposed to all that stuff. But most of it is filler. They put it in the curriculum so that the professor has enough to say in the course of a semester. 
and most of it is not practical. I believe in practical ethics. I believe in learning the part of ethics that has immediate application and that allows us to live better lives on a day-to-day basis. Well, before we're done here today, I'm going to give you a very short lesson in ethics which you will retain because it's simple, it's easy, and it's very relevant, very relevant as you will see. So when I was working with John David, the first thing I had to do was learn the ethics which he taught. He taught it extremely well. In fact, if you want uh, the best explanation of it that exists today, I believe it is the book he wrote called Creative Transformation. It's not an easy read for most people. It's very detailed, very exhaustive in terms of the subjects that it goes over. And in fact, when I read it back in 84, I thought, my, this is wonderful information, but most people aren't going to wade through this huge amount of data in order to understand it. So I better start writing articles to make it easier to understand. And I wound up writing articles and then combining them into books, and I've written seven books. The most recent of which I recommend that your listeners read is called Flourish. And it's available online. So that book summarizes a lot of what I'm going to refer to today. And it has a considerable amount of detail in it, but it's an easy to read compared to John David's book. It's easy to read. It's only 200 pages, and his is probably 800 or more. I can confirm that because I've already started on it. Aha, okay. I'm getting through it quite quickly. Okay, cool, yeah. So, anyway, I, I wanted to make the material that John David taught accessible to as many people as possible. At the same time, it's not geared for people of average or below average intelligence because they are not the ones who are going to initiate the big changes that are coming. It is addressed to people of above average intelligence, but they don't have to be John David's or Einstein's or you know, someone especially intelligent in order to understand it. It's pretty generally understandable. Okay, getting back then to here I was at a workshop exposed to lessons in ethics and experiments in creativity. Now, John David and I came up with some crude ways of measuring the creativity of a group. And we wanted to know, how are we going to enhance or amplify creativity in groups? If that were done well enough and sufficiently widespread, the world would change dramatically, dramatically. For instance, today... The big problem that our species faces is not many. It, it's, it, you know, we have hunger and war and violence and addiction, and you can go down the long list, but they're all symptoms. There's a central theme, a central problem, out of which all of these symptoms come. And that is that our institutions, particularly the ones we turn to in hopes of finding solutions to our societal problems, those institutions consistently make unethical decisions. If that one fact were to change, all of those symptoms would go away. 
we wouldn't have wars. We wouldn't have violence. We wouldn't have addiction. A lot of things would change. I see that as very desirable, so that's what I am working toward. I think the problem is the power is controlled by few and only for their benefit and exactly. pretty much that to the hell with the rest of the planet. Exactly. Well, they're psychopaths, the ones who are in charge today. Yes. And, uh, you know, having been a psychotherapist for 25 years, I think I speak with some authority when I say that <clears throat> as long as the world is run by this kind of folk, we're going to have more and more serious problems. The good thing, I think, is a lot of people uh, in this movement, whatever you want to call it, truth movement is usually the, the term used, that's the part that most people are getting. The mm-hmm. top of the, the chain there, they're pretty bad people. Yeah. I, I did not, when I first, uh, well, back in 84, 85, when I first encountered this information, what was available of it then, nobody talked about the psychopaths in charge of the world. Today, you hear that phrase pretty often, psychopaths or sociopaths, mm-hmm. and that's what they are. They are people without conscience, totally self-absorbed, interested only in what benefits them, and they don't care how many people they kill to get what they want. Right. Okay, so recognizing that that's the big problem, uh, I looked at, I, I did some systems analysis on societal institutions and came to realize that the ones that most people think are going to solve the problems are big business, especially big banks, organized religions, and government. I took the initials of those words and I call them the Borg. (laughs) Banks, organized religions, government. They are the problem. They're not the solution. They never will be the solution. And you cannot fix government. This is one of the things I had to learn. Because I can remember as a young man thinking, oh, government's great. We just fix some of these little problems with it and everything's going to be wonderful. Well, depending upon how far back you're talking... Americana was a lot better, and that's, you know, the general culture was a lot more positive, and that's kind of, that's pretty much gone now. Right. I, I'm old enough to just remember the end of that, and it's definitely right. far, far different world oh, yeah. than... It is, and you're right that we went through a period that was better than we have now. More people were educated, more people understood what government was about and what the downside was of having government, that awareness went away for a while. People lost it. Systematically, the government, by changing the nature of the educational system, the school system actually, they changed the level of awareness in our society. They dumbed us down. And it took, for quite a while, it it took people with exceptional opportunities to learn, to recognize what was actually going on. So, going back to, okay, we we had this new awareness emerging. Part of that new awareness was just realizing that Government per se is part of the problem. It can never be the answer. For one thing, we don't own the government. We, the public, we don't own the government. It is owned lock, stock, and barrel 
by the very wealthy bankers and corporate owners who control the world today. That's very true. Yeah. And because they are the owners and they are in charge of the nature of government, they have turned the government into a robot that they own. And they've programmed it so it cannot be changed by anyone but them. In Flourish, the book, uh, I have a whole chapter on the government robot <laughs> and why it cannot be changed. If you attempt to change it by voting, you're just getting, de you know, depending on who you vote for, you get a different flavor of the same tyranny. Mm -hmm. The tyranny has been with us for 8,000 years. And even though a lot of people hoped that the constitution of this country would change all of that, it didn't. And the reason it didn't is because it presumes the necessity of government. It presumes that it's okay for one person to have authority over another. This is one of the areas where I really admire Larkin Rose because he pointed out in, in his book, uh, The Most Dangerous Superstition, he pointed out that if we stopped believing in authority, everything would change for the better. It's this notion that someone else has a right to tell me what to do just because they or some friends of theirs or forebears of theirs wrote a piece of paper giving them permission to tell me what to do. <laughs> well, that's obviously false when you examine it. But most people don't examine it because we're not taught in school anymore how to examine anything. And so the, the school system is very destructive. I knew that a long time ago. I knew that back in 1970. actually wrote a, an article on it back in 1970. The school system is damaging. We need a whole new educational system that isn't run by a government. Right. I want to see that come about. I think it's safe to say today they've gotten it to a point especially with the new Common Core system, they, they have their hands in it so much so that it's just destroying critical thinking completely. Yes, I agree. And a lot of people are recognizing that and, and speaking out against it. Yes, and as long as they have a virtual monopoly on schooling, it's going to be very hard to bring about change. Right. Well, I'd like to interject here that I really think Buckminster Fuller was right when he said, if you don't like the system in which you live, don't fight the system. Invent a new system that makes the old system obsolete and irrelevant. That's what we're doing now. And uh, there is a growing movement to bring this about. And although it's in its early stages, uh, those of us doing it are very optimistic that we found mechanisms by which we can actually succeed at it. That's providing that uh, existing governments don't incinerate us first, <laughs> which could happen. I mean, we don't know. It could be too late. It could be we're uh, going into a period of irreversible entropy, uh, as John David used to call it. But we don't know that, and we won't know until we run the experiment that has the possibility of changing everything for the better. That means raising awareness. That's why we're recording this session. Okay, so the ethics. Let's go back to the ethics, because that's really the starting point. 
in order to change the world for the better, we have to have most people understanding ethics and choosing to live by a valid ethic. Well, everybody seems to know that ethics is the means by which we decide what is okay to do and what's not. We have a kind of intuitive feel for that. And in the past, that intuitive feel resulted in a thing that's usually referred to as common law. And common law is just something that goes on in people's heads that tells them it's not okay to injure others or to initiate violence against others. It's not okay to kill, rob, beat, steal, defraud, etc., etc. And unfortunately, those acts which are evil in and of themselves are not the only ones that are forbidden. Governments add to that category things that are forbidden just because someone wants to forbid them. And there's a legal term for this. It's uh, like most legal terms. It's a Latin term that uh, things that are evil in and of themselves that are forbidden for that reason are called mala in se. Mala meaning evils or bad stuff. In se meanings, meaning of itself. Well, then there's the other category, things that are mala prohibita. These are things that are considered bad just because someone says so. <laughs> And there are thousands of laws against those things, and they are laws that enable plunderers to take our resources, mainly. So when you're out on the road and some cop pulls you over for speeding, are you a criminal? Speeding isn't a crime. Crimes always, by definition, have victims. There's no victim of your speeding assuming you hadn't had an accident. <laughs> but the cop pulling you over will treat you as if it was a crime. Yeah. And he will coerce you into showing up in front of a guy with a black dress. <laughs> you either pay for the privilege of not showing up, or you show up and then he decides how much money you're going to be punished for the non-existent crime that you're accused of. I object vigorously to that whole way that things are done. And a lot of other people do too. A lot of people don't realize that if you read any law dictionary, crime is defined as a behavior that damages someone. It damages their person or their property rights. Uh, You know, you have a collision, you damage somebody else's vehicle, uh, if it's your if you if it's your doing, you're res- you have a responsibility to uh, restore the person's vehicle that you damaged. But when it comes to speeding or having a broken tail light or uh, just some arbitrary thing that a cop decides, the cop is acting not as a representative of the public well-being. He's a bandit. (laughs) I mean, what do bandits do? Well, they pick people arbitrarily along the roads, they stop them, and they coerce them to give up money, and if they are unwilling, they hurt them. Mm, Yeah. And we have pepper sprays and asp batons and uh, tasers and guns and cages, all of these ways that 
you can be hurt for not towing the line. So, this is what is, and we want to create something different. It turns out that there's a key to doing something different. And it's easy to understand this key if you go back to this notion that authority is bogus. We're all born equal. Yeah, the Bill of Rights got that right. <laughs> well, where did we go wrong back historically? We went wrong when we agreed, some of us, I wasn't around back then, of course, <laughs> but uh, there were people who agreed to be bound by a constitution. And the constitution gave some fictitious thing called a government the right supposedly, to tax you, to le levy taxes. Well, that immediately meant you're not free. The Constitution is a lie. You have to pay taxes. And as soon as someone has a right to take money or other resources from you against your wishes, you're not living in a free society, no matter how many constitutions you've got. Hmm. The Constitution's part of the game. It's part of the act, part of what the wool that was pulled over your eyes, or mine, I mean, I certainly grew up believing in all of that crap. Mm -hmm. And in reality, it's just all crap. That uh, authority was made up, it was invented. Well, the invention goes back a long ways. It wasn't that at the beginning of this country that it was invented. It goes back 8,000 years uh, from historical and archaeological evidence uh, most people believe today, those who study such things, believe that government got invented about 8,000 years ago in Sumer, which is now southern Iraq. Kind of ironic. <laughs> <clears throat> so government was an invention intended to help bandits plunder the public. That's all it's ever been. The whole notion that the that government is for and by the people is a lie. And along with that, there's a whole bunch of other lies. I call them the comforting lies. You know, things like government people are wise and caring. <laughs> I mean, it sounds absurd today. Yes, it does. But when I was a boy, most people believed that lie. I believed it. I thought government was, you know, a bunch of good guys doing good things. Eventually, we get over believing the lies if we have any intelligence and we're willing to think outside the box we've been taught to think in. I happen to like that. I happen to like the idea that we can think our way out of the big problem. Hmm. To do that, we have to understand ethics. And again, I'm coming back to the ethics. It's at the root of everything that I do and could be at the root of everything you do, you the listener, and it should be. I, I don't put shoulds on people. <laughs> I have preferences. Mm -hmm. I, I want... You know, whenever somebody says, you should, ought, have to, must, these are all words that really mean someone wants you to do it, whatever it is. Right. You have to blah, blah, blah. You should blah, blah, blah. This, the speaker is saying what they want. And I'm very forward about what I want, but I present it as what I want not what some arbitrary dead guy in the sky <laughs> tells me I ought to want. Okay, so let's go back to the ethics. What is an ethic? Well, every ethic 
every ethic in the world that exists or ever did exist consists of just two parts. You see, it's very simple. I don't need to take a whole term, fill a whole semester with this information. You're going to get it really quick here. Two parts. One part is a definition of a value. And that just defines what it is you want more of in your life or what you want to maximize. A value. The second part is a belief or a belief system that presumes to tell you how to behave in order to get more of what it is you want, the thing you value. That's all there is to an ethic, those two parts. Now, there are those who point out, I can pick any value I want. I can believe whatever belief system I want. Therefore, my choice of an ethic is entirely arbitrary. I can pick whatever I like. And that means that there's no such thing as objective ethics, and ethics becomes a trivial subject. Hmm. I used to believe that. Then I found out, wait a minute, I I'm forgetting something here. <laughs> hmm. Let's suppose that the value I picked was happiness. Now, let's suppose that the belief system was something absurd like uh, eating a lot of flapjacks. If I eat enough flapjacks, I'll be happy. Well, is that likely to be true? No. So if you follow the belief system and you don't get the thing you value, or worse still, you get the opposite, the ethic isn't valid. So the important thing isn't just to have an ethic, which could be anything. It's to have a valid ethic, an ethic where when I follow the belief system, I get more of something I really value. And it turns out that most things that people value are incapable of being the core of a valid ethic. Incapable. You have to pick a value that works. Well, I've already told you four of them that work. Awareness, love, objective truth and creativity. So from now on, when I speak of creativity, I'm actually meaning all four of those things, referring to them simultaneously since they're logically equivalent. Okay, so if I pick one of those as a value, I could create a valid ethic. And it goes something like this. An act is ethical if it increases any one of those four resources, let's say creativity, for at least one person, including the person acting, without limiting or diminishing creativity for anyone. This turns out to be a valid ethic. And every valid ethic that I've run across in the 30 years that I've been studying this stuff turns out to be logically equivalent to that one, in that if I use a different ethic that's valid, I arrive at the same behaviors in terms of what do I have to do to get more of, of the thing I value. Well, that definition turns out to be extremely powerful. And out of it, one can, simply by turning the crank of logic, one can derive a whole set of principles that are the means by which you can guide yourself ethically on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. For instance, one of the principles, and for today's talk I'm only going to talk about one or two, 
One of the principles is that it's impossible to achieve ethical ends by unethical means. That's not a matter of preference. That's not an opinion. It is a logical consequence of the definition that we started out with. Let me ask you, is there anything you can see about that definition of a valid ethic that you would find fault with? No, only the fact that a lot of people are selfish and would probably try and argue the point about promotion of self. Hmm. To me, it's interesting that the most selfish people are the ones who put themselves out as being the most generous (laughs) and who seem to outwardly care the most about their fellow man. And they turn out to, you know, be communists and socialists who think it's perfectly okay to steal from people in order to meet their needs. Oh, I thought that was ridiculous. It is. But that's the way it is. It goes back to early childhood experience. Well, honestly, I can't understand how people willingly subscribe to those systems. Just there, there are so many people who want to be communists and socialists, even as Americans. That just never computed right with me. Well, in a future discussion that we will have, I will explain how that experience of growing up to be a socialist or a communist comes directly out of particular experiences that children have between the ages of six months and and 18 months. So there are psychological happenings yes. that cause those triggers Specific for later life. traumatic events that bring about attitudes and warped perceptions. Hmm. That makes sense, though. It does indeed. And as when, when we're ready to talk about that in detail, you'll see that uh, people who have certain kinds of early childhood experience cannot help but grow up prone to the idea of socialism or communism because they feel cheated by life. And they were cheated when they were little. Mm. But they have generalized that feeling of being cheated to society at large and think someone owes me. I didn't get some goodies when I was little. (laughs) Now somebody owes me. By God, they're going to give it to me, whether they like it or not. That's the mindset that goes with that. We will, I'm sure, in future sessions, we will talk quite a bit about the personal aspects of the ethics and what it is that makes people so at odds with good ethics. But in the meantime, let's go back to, okay, now we have a definition of an ethical act. And by the way, it doesn't make sense to decide whether a person is ethical or not. It is people's actions, behaviors, that are ethical or not. That's why we say an ethical act is one that we define it. People may be prone to behaving unethically. That doesn't mean that they themselves are unethical. It just means their behavior is unethical. Maybe they've been conditioned to act that way. Maybe they're ignorant of ethics. But we could be teaching ethics in grade school. I mean, I haven't said anything to you today that I couldn't say to a grade schooler. And they'd understand it. Very true. Unfortunately, uh, as parents, we screw up our grade schooler children. For example, one of the things we do is we tell them that something we give them belongs to them. 
Okay, here's this toy that I bought for you. And the child goes, oh, wow, I own this toy. It's mine. <laughs> and the next day, the same parent says, now you've got to share that with your little brother. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> it's mine. I thought it was mine. Well, it is yours, but no, it's not. <laughs> You're borrowing it from the parent that really owns it. He controls what happens to it. But he's dishonest about it. And that is very confusing to a child. So we have to begin treating children ethically if they're ever to learn ethics. And they can learn it really early, really young. That's just one example of what parents do with a child that makes it harder for them to learn the ethics. Well, if the parents don't know the ethics, how are they going to teach it? Sure, yeah. Okay, so you cannot achieve ethical ends by unethical means, and because of that, every ethical means is an ethical end in itself. Not obvious, but true. A simple logical consequence of the definition we started out with. There's a whole set of principles like this. Uh, it's ethical to defend yourself, for example, against the threat of violence or aggression. Well, violence can kill you and reduce your creativity to zero. And if you don't defend yourself, you're allowing that to happen. Uh, it's not ethical to allow one person to reduce another person's creativity. Hmm. So it's not ethical for you to Permit it. And if you can do so without harm to yourself, you are ethically obliged to intervene. Hmm. Okay, that has a lot of sub-consequences, but the basic idea is sound. Self-defense is good, and defense of others is good. I, since I have the right of self-defense, I can delegate that. I can say, okay, I'm going to hire a bodyguard, because I'm old and weak and, in, you know, I, I'm infirm <laughs> and I need someone to protect me, so I'm going to pay someone to protect me. Well, that's totally ethical, providing they act ethically. So self-defense is a good thing. And in fact, instead of creating laws that forbid us to defend ourselves and forbid us to carry weaponry that allows us to defend ourselves, we should be making laws that give more and more permission to self-defense, or maybe even support self-defense. There are actually a couple of towns where they've created a law that everyone has to own a gun. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that those are some of the safest places to be. I don't doubt that. I've had that experience myself. I've been to a number of events here in Arizona Well, here in Arizona we have the law on our side in that we can carry it's called constitutional carry, which means we can carry a weapon, could be a firearm, and we can carry it either in hiding, concealed, or openly. It's legal. Well, I've been to uh, Freedom Fest here in Arizona. I've been to Jackalope Freedom Festival. And at those events, at least half of the people there carry guns. Mm. And I felt really safe. Because if someone tried to mug me, there'd be a dozen guns pointed at him <laughs> in about five seconds. All right. So. Well, statistically, that that's totally backed up. That the, the cities that are 
disarmed have the most crime. Right. New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago. Sure. They're the worst ones, and I think that speaks for itself. It does. Uh, because the criminals know, oh, there's exactly. a very, very strong likelihood that person does not have a weapon. Exactly. And I do. Exactly. That would be the place to go if you were a mugger looking for a victim. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. In fact, that's been verified by interviewing a lot of people who are in prison who got caught for doing some of those things. And they were questioned about, well, how do you pick your victims? And they want the most helpless people they can find as sure. victims. They just want to get what they want and move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've got ethical principles. It is ethical to learn. Increases your awareness increases your access to objective truth. And because of that, it is ethical to teach most of the time. Now, I should point out at this point that the ethics of teaching is, in fact, the application of ethics generally is never perfect. And by that I mean when I make a decision that I'm going to do something, I do not know all of the facts that may have bearing on that decision. Let's say somebody comes to me and says, uh, a young man, let's say, comes to me and says, Bob, I'd like you to teach me to read. Would it be ethical for me to teach him to read? There are people who say, yes, it would be, no matter what his intentions are, it would be ethical. But wait a minute. He then tells me, I want to read this book about how to make bombs. (laughs) Because I've got some guys I want to go bomb. People who offended me, I want to bomb them. Hmm. Would it be still ethical for me to teach him to read? I'd be enabling him to do something very unethical. It would not be ethical for me to teach him to read. But wait, wait. What if I asked this young man if he would be willing to read Flourish, a book that is about the application of ethics. Would he be willing to read it and understand it to my satisfaction and do so before building a bomb and do so... Is there a way that he can convince me that he would do this so I actually believe him? Okay, because if I don't believe him that he would do this... I'm not going to teach him how to read. But if he persuades me that he means it, that he really wants to learn the ethics, he wants to understand what he's doing, then it might be ethical for me to teach him to read in spite of the fact that he wanted originally to build a bomb. (laughs) Ah. Well, there might be another set of facts I could wrap around that that would again make it unethical for me to teach him to read. Well... That kind of decision-making is a good illustration of the fact that whenever we make a decision about our ethics, we don't know all the facts. We cannot know all the facts. I've sometimes had fantasies about being in a courtroom and being asked to swear I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I think about it and say, wait a minute, I don't know the whole truth. I can't (laughs) tell the whole truth. Nobody knows the whole truth. It's absurd. So we make decisions informed by the ethics, but they're never perfect. We make mistakes. And we have to accept that and do the best we can in order to have an ethical society. 
well, what does an ethical society look like? Well, I'll go back now to the experiments that John David and I did. One of the questions we wanted to get an answer to is, if you're going to have an ethical group involved in ethical activity and maximizing creativity, what's the best size for the group? Do we need a, at least 100 people to do that? So we began experimenting. We had some crude ways of measuring creativity, and we worked with two people, three people, four people, up to about 20. And what we saw was a bell-shaped curve, and it had a peak at eight people. Ah. Seven and nine was almost as good. Below seven and above nine, creativity dropped off steeply. Hmm. You'll see data on this in John David's book, Creative Transformation. So, what does that mean? Well, it means that if you want to have an ethical society, that society should be about eight people. Wow, how do you make that work for large scale? Well, a group trained, and it only takes a couple of days training to make it work, a group trained in making ethical decisions, which by the way, in such groups, decisions have to be unanimous. Otherwise, the creativity gets destroyed. You have to have an agreement with the other people in the group. Only those agreements that we make unanimously count as group agreements. Which means that if someone proposes something unethical, there's likely to be someone else in the group that says, no, no, wait a minute, that's not ethical, let's not do that. Right. And he can make it stick because as long as he disagrees, it doesn't become a group decision. And then everyone talks it out like, hey, yes. why do you feel that way? Because yes. this doesn't seem right. Yes. You hold discussions and you keep on talking about it if it's important until you arrive at unanimity. There are some specific exercises that make it easier to get to unanimity. That's part of what I teach when I do workshops. Okay, so we've got a group of eight that make unanimous decisions who have picked an ethical purpose for associating with each other. And the next thing was, uh, what's the best ratio of men and women? Well, we experimented with that. Found out that the closer to equal, the better. So you could have... Uh, three and four, making up seven. You could have four and five, making up nine, or you have four and four. Go outside those limits, and again, the creativity drops off steeply. Hmm. Okay, so now we've got small groups, balanced numbers of men and women, unanimous decisions, and there's one other piece that we found that is crucial, and that is the people in the group must be willing to give and receive feedback from one another. Now this sounds easier than it is <laughs> because we are trained from early childhood to defend against corrective feedback. This is the cause of bureaucracy. Bureaucracy by definition is the systematic elimination, destruction, or avoidance of corrective feedback. It takes a few moments to think that one over, but <laughs> you'll find there's no better definition than that one. And if people are not giving each other corrective feedback, they're going to be bureaucratized as a group, and they will make unethical decisions as a group. So it's very important that people learn 
to put aside their defense mechanisms, their neuroticisms, their sensitivities to certain things, and be willing to hear feedback and make use of it. Because if I give you feedback that says, hey, maybe you'd be better off doing this instead of that, you're better off listening, recognizing that I mean well, I'm attempting to give you information that will increase your creativity, instead of going, oh no, that can't be, I'm not like that, (laughs) or some words to that effect. So lowering our defense mechanisms becomes part of what we have to learn to become really good at this stuff. That can be learned. That is, as a matter of fact, the core concept of psychotherapy is learning to lower one's defenses and, of course, learning to recognize when it is safe to do so. Well, in these little groups of eight people, which I call octologues, it quickly becomes very safe to give and receive feedback. So there we are, making unanimous decisions, balanced men and women, and giving each other high-quality feedback from a caring place. And listening to that feedback, we have to learn to listen. That's the hard part of the feedback equation, is learning to listen. Now, there's an emotional part to this, too, that as eight people are discussing things openly and being open-minded to each other, there's a feeling of trust and friendship that starts to develop as well, so that theoretically you'd be more willing to want to keep giving and receiving as well. You're exactly right. And in fact, that sense of safety and trust comes to dominate the group. Now, in the early stages of the development of a group, I want to take a little aside on that trip now, every such group, every octologue, begins with one person. Someone who says, I have something ethical I want to do, but I can't do it alone. I'm going to find some more people to do it with me. Cool. All right, that works. And so you begin finding people that want to become part of this process. And when you've got eight people, it still may not be enough. Nine people may not be enough. You might need 900 to do some some projects. (laughs) You know, when I discuss with people the fact that we don't need government anymore, if we ever did... (laughs) Uh, A lot of people say, well, without government, where would we get the roads and bridges? Who would build the roads and bridges? That's always the first argument that always comes up, too. It is. And it's fallacious. The answer is, there are several answers. One is that the same people who are building them today would still be building them, but they'd be building them better, faster, cheaper. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, We would have a lot of advantages building roads uh, if we weren't constrained by government to do it the way we do it. I think people in general are just more positive about everything when they don't feel something is being enforced, but they're doing it because they want to do it. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's just a general life statement. You feel better when you're like, this is what I want to do because I know it's the right thing to do, not because I'm being told to do it. Right. It's the basis of voluntarism. Everything should be voluntary. That's what real freedom looks like. It's not, oh, we've got a government that likes us. (laughs) Uh, They only tax us a little bit. Uh, They support really good works. None of that works. You know, as soon as you have taxation, you've got authority, you've got some people having a right to rule others. 
just arbitrarily. I mean, there's no justification for it unless you believe that God appointed them. You know, the the uh, divine right of kings came out of that <laughs> idea. Mm. And most of us no longer subscribe to that. But the people running the world subscribe to it. They think they have a right to do what they're doing. Yes, they do. They have the power to do it, but they don't have the right. And I think that's going to change. And it'll change because most people work in a hierarchy. Now, this is one of the core ideas that the project I'm working on and have been working on for quite a while. Uh, we embrace this core idea that hierarchy is fundamentally bad because it's entirely based on authority. And as long as we have a system based on the authority some people have over others, uh, we're in trouble, ethically. We're in big trouble. That doesn't work. We have to be willing to move away from that paradigm if we're to see any positive change in the world. So without authority, you don't have hierarchy. Now think about this from your own experience. You've worked in a hierarchy, mm -hmm. and you have a boss. And in different hierarchies, uh, different bosses, you'll run into different kinds of stuff. But in general, the boss tells you what to do, where to do it, when to do it, how to do it, what to wear while you're doing it, whether you can take a potty break from doing it. And by controlling your income, what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive, what kind of schools your kids go to, what kind of vacations you take, all of that's control. You have no control over it, basically. That's your boss. Hmm. And what do you get out of it? Well, you get to be in a position where you can be someone else's boss. <laughs> oh, boy. Mm. Well, for people who want power over others, that's very attractive. But from an ethical standpoint, nobody who wants power over others should ever be given power over others. Right. I use the word should, but in a very specific context there. So where does that leave us? Well, we can take these groups of eight and combine them into bigger groups by forming ethical contracts between them. So if I wanted to build roads, I'd probably have an octologue that's devoted to raising money for the venture. I'd have another octologue involved in the technology of road building. I would have another octologue that deals with uh, recruiting road builders. Uh, and so on. Each different function would have its own octologue. And they'd have a contract to work together in what I call a holomat. A holomat being nothing but uh, an aggregation of octologues that work together for a common purpose under an ethical contract. And by the way, the book Flourish has the description of an ethical contract. So you can actually apply this information it's the first of the appendices in the book that explains what is, what constitutes a good contract. Okay, so now we've got holomats of octologues, and there's no limit to how big a holomat can be. You could have a billion people in one holomat. And for some purposes, that might be a really good thing. And there's, there's no limitation on how many holomats or octologues you can be a member of other than the fact you only have so many hours in the day. Mm -hmm. So this, is a, this provides a way to create a horizontally structured 
cooperative network that can accomplish any ethical task in an optimized way. There's one other piece that we added to this technology. We figured out, okay, we've got all these pieces in place, but on a day-to-day -day basis, what happens when we are trying to solve a problem that we have yet to solve? Okay, we've got to make a decision about something difficult, or we've got to raise money that we don't know where it's going to come from, or whatever. Well, we will discuss that at length, functioning somewhat the way a committee might function, although a little bit better than a committee. And then we will, in one of these groups, we will then perform what is called, what we've come to call an amplification. And the amplification is a kind of meditative process. It is a shared meditation that we share it by being allowing ourselves to be led into an altered mental state with a guided fantasy, if you will. So someone in the group guides the group through this fantasy process to where the uh, mental state of the people in the group changes. Now, I, have a, I, I use a certain word for that change, and it tends to be a loaded word because a lot of people don't understand it. I call that altered state a trance. <laughs> now, partly I do that because I used to do a lot of Ericksonian hypnosis. I know something about trance. When you pay attention to your experience in your normal state of awareness, you're not in trance. But as soon as you pay attention to your experience in some other way than what you usually do, you are in trance by definition. So it's just an alteration in how you pay attention to what you see and hear and feel, which is makes up your experience. So we have a way that a group, even a bigger group, but we usually do it with you know eight or nine people, we have a way of going into a shared trance state in which the creativity of the group is greater than the sum of the creativities of the individuals in the group. In other words, it's a synergistic process. And it's a little bit mysterious. I mean, it has, for some people, it has kind of a spiritual component to it. Um, I tend not to see it in that particular light, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the process is what it is, and it works. An amazing new awareness will come into being during an amplification session. There are a couple of very basic rules that people in those sessions follow. One is, if I get an idea, a new idea, and I'm thinking about sharing it with a group, initially I don't do it. I sort of mentally push the idea away. No, no, I'm not going to say that. If that same idea recurs, I am obliged to share it, no matter how strange, weird, bizarre, obscene, strange it turns out to be. And it turns out that some of the strangest ideas turn out to be the most useful and the most creative when we examine them later on. Frequently, when people come out of that altered state, they don't remember what they said or what anyone else said. Hmm. So we record them. And later on, we play it back to extract from that session the useful information. That works. Hmm. And we get pretty amazing results from that. 
Okay, so what I've given you now in this brief session has been an overview. We have an ethical standard. We have a means of organizing groups of any size for any ethical purpose. We have criteria for how those groups interact with, the, with themselves and how they work uh, on a person-to-person basis. And we have some organizational principles that allow us to pick what our group is going to be involved with and how we're going to associate with other groups. All of that, hopefully, will lead inevitably to, among other things, teaching people in our society how to be there for our children. See, that's an important piece. How we raise our children is important because if we keep doing it the way we've been doing it, no, no amount of holomats of octologues is going to make a difference. Part of what we have to do if we're going to succeed as, as a movement is we have to learn how to treat children respectfully. Agreed. So that's it for now. This is... Uh, I, I, I guess something I could add is most people don't really understand the nature of government. They think it's something benign. When it isn't, right? It is uh, very not benign. Government is, by its nature, any government is a power brokerage cartel. By power brokerage, I'm referring to, for instance, if, if I set myself up as king, I might say to you, Jason, how'd you like to be my tax collector? I will put my police and my military at your disposal. You go out and collect taxes, and you get to keep 10%. That's power brokerage. Mm-hmm. I'm delegating authority to you, which, of course, is made-up authority. You know, I've convinced my neighbors that I have the divine right of kings or some such craziness. <laughs> right. And I will delegate authority to you for which you are rewarded by exercising that authority. Well, that is power brokerage. What makes it a cartel is that a cartel is a shared monopoly that exists for only two purposes. None of them very friendly to the public. One purpose is to maximize the profits of the members of the cartel. Right. And the other purpose is to maintain the monopoly role of the cartel in whatever the industry happens to be. Right. In this case, power brokerage. You need to be aware that for every single activity that you require a license, if there's some government federal, state, county, municipal, if there's a government that requires you to be licensed to do something, that activity is controlled by a cartel. Because that's what cartels do. They contract with government agencies to enforce their rules. Because you can't do a certain thing unless they say it's okay for you to do a certain thing. Yes. You are getting their permission, and it costs you to get the permission. Of course. They don't want you to compete with them, so they put hurdles in the way of your joining the the group. They make it difficult to compete. And they can only do that because there are thugs with badges and guns (laughs) who will come out and make your life miserable if you disobey. Right. So that's the nature of the cartel, and uh, the power brokerage cartel is the nature of government. And the government is owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Mm ultra-wealthy. You can't control it. You know, a lot of people whom I respect, 
like, for example, uh, Ed Griffith. Mm-hmm. He wrote the uh, uh, Creature from Jekyll Island. Yep. Brilliant book, and uh, he did a brilliant speech that you can download online. Mm-hmm. A f- about forty-five minute explanation of the. Of yeah, I've seen it. It's it's wonderful. It is detailed. <laughs> it is, and uh, but his notion of how to fix the world is for us to get ourselves in positions of power to infiltrate the power system by becoming officers in corporations and getting ourselves elected and so on and so forth to become freedom-loving people who happen to be part of the system. Mm. It doesn't work. I tried explaining it to him one time and he stopped communicating with me because he didn't want to hear it. Mm. And yet... Government is a robot. If you get yourself infiltrated into government and you want to make a real change, well, for starters, you'll be ignored. You won't get any traction in terms of support for your ideas. You'll be isolated within the... You'll be a member, but not able to do anything. You you have to sell your soul, in effect, to become influential. And beyond that, if you still manage to be somewhat influential, like, say, Ron Paul, you find that you are excluded from maximizing the power that you can control what goes on. You you can't turn it into an ethical society simply because you're not allowed. No, they'll just completely ignore you if you're trying to do things. They'll ignore you or kick you out Mm -hmm. or get someone else elected, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Or, let's say, they kick you out and you still manage to nip at their heels, <laughs> they'll have you killed. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been assassinated in the last few years oh, yeah. in that way. And more and more people are becoming aware that some of our best people are getting assassinated. Well, that certainly puts a damper on change. Mm-hmm. This becomes another good reason to become a part of this Titania project because more and more people are going to want to be part of an octologue instead of part of a hierarchy. Yeah. I mean, think about it. In the hierarchy, you've got the boss telling you all this stuff. As an option, you join an octologue as an equal. You have as much to say about what the group does as anyone. You're treated ethically instead of unethically. You get to be, as you pointed out, close to the people in your group. You develop a high level of trust. Usually, you also wind up with a social relationship with them because you like hanging out together and you have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you go to work in such a setting, instead of going in the morning, instead of going, oh, God, I've got to go to work, (laughs) instead, you wake up and say, wow, I get to go to work today. (laughs) You know, you have some enthusiasm for what you're doing in your life. Your life has meaning to you. That is definitely a better lifestyle. Absolutely. Who would stay in the pyramid if they could join an octologue instead? So, as I see our job, and I'm including you in that because we're so aligned in our purpose, Mm -hmm. our job is simply to make that opportunity available to as many people as possible as quickly as we can. And your recording discussions such as this is a big step in that direction and I applaud you for that and I'm looking forward to our having a lot more such sessions on 
the various specifics, I also want to invite our listeners to connect with us with their questions. Uh, I will leave it to you to provide the information necessary for them to either call in or email in with questions. I'll provide the links on the description. And if you want to give out your websites now just so they can hear it up front, go right ahead. My primary website is called titanians.org, T-I-T-A-N-I-A-N-S.org. And I have another website that I have just put up the, the skeleton of. It is not yet fully functional, but it will be, and you might want to watch it. It's called Creative Consulting Services. Dot com, And between those three words, there are hyphens. Creative Consulting Services. This is the business arm of the Titania Project. So when you go to titanians.org, you're not going to see many ads. You're not going to, you know, the only thing on there for sale is the book, Flourish. Mm-hmm. We've been very careful not to monetize that site. This will not be true of Creative Consulting Services because we're actually selling consulting services. The material on titanians.org is open source. You can use it any way you like. And there will be people, I have no doubt, who will form groups of eight for ethical purposes without getting any more training than is available on that website. I do want, however, to create a system that encompasses lots of people teaching the same stuff in one form or another for many different purposes. So one group might teach the application of ethics to nonprofits, and someone else might uh, say, well, I want to make it more specific, I want to apply it to charities. And someone else might say, no, no, I want it more general, I want to apply it to business, and so forth. That's the beauty of it. It can be used for many different, or pretty much any purpose. Any ethical purpose. It's also an interesting fact that if one attempts to use it for an unethical purpose, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. It Brilliant back, out it, of the box. It backfires. That probably up front would be because unethical people won't be able to agree on any one thing. Yes, that's a piece of it, mm-hmm. for sure. For I, sure. I could just see eight banksters sitting around all being selfish and, and just thinking about themselves. Hard to come to an agreement on those things. Plus the fact that they'd have to completely redefine what is ethical. As long as there's someone in the group that buys the definition of ethics that I just gave you, then that group becomes powerless. Because they couldn't agree on anything. Right. There'd always be at least one person saying, no, no, that's not ethical. (laughs) I'm not going to go along with that. A very valuable way to provide feedback is to stick to what you know and stick by your guns, as it were. (laughs) you know, to insist on acting ethically or not acting. There are many other pieces of this technology that I'd like to go over with you in more detail uh, on another occasion. Uh, Each of the uh, primary logical consequences of the ethic or principles, there's 14 of them, and each of them is worthy of discussion on its own. So in the weeks to come, what I'd like to do is for us to sit down and actually define what are the chunks of information we want to put together this way and map it out and go ahead and 
create it. All right. So I thank you. And I thank very much you. for that. This was a wonderful conversation, extremely informative, and I definitely encourage everyone to look into what we've been discussing. And that's it, folks. We'll see you soon.